Hello, and welcome to Represent the Podcast, the show where I, Katie Beth McKinney, sit down with composers from historically marginalized and underrepresented backgrounds and discuss their works for the horn. Hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Represent the Podcast, the show where I talk to composers from historically underrepresented backgrounds about their works for the horn. My name is Katie Beth McKinney, and today I have Gina Gilley. I'm super excited to have her here. She is a professor of horn at Pacific Lutheran University, as well as a performer, composer, horn player extraordinaire. So, Gina, thank you for being here today. I'm so excited. Sure. Thanks for having me. So we'll just jump right in. Um, how did you start in music and in composition? And those can be completely two different answers if you want. <laughs> I basically started music in utero as a young child. Uh, I sang in children's choirs. I started in band in junior high. And that was because well, I was a singer before then. And when I got to junior high, there was a new junior high and the choir director there was not too great. And I had an older sister and she said, don't do choir. And so I said, but I have to do music. And so I took band and I was really skeptical about it because those band kids are a little nutty. We can be wild. <laughs> so I took band. I started immediately on the horn. The very first few sounds that I made on it my memory is that I sounded amazing. I don't know how I actually sounded, but I thought it was great. So it was it was like love at first, whatever. First and note. <laughs> first note, yes. So I did band in junior high. Then in high school, I went back and I did choir as well as band. Um, and I showed an inclination for composing when I was young. In high school, I decided to write a vocal trio for Anthony's speech in Anthony's speech in my English class, and I was really proud of it and showed it to my choir director. And what I remember from that interaction is that he just told me I had a bunch of voice leading errors. <laughs> I was expecting, wow, this is great. I'm so glad you're writing music. And it was, yeah, your voice leading is wrong. That must have been so disappointing. It was a little crushing. I, how was I to know? I had zero compositional training. And so I was expecting something like, well, here, let me help you um, discover the things that are some rules. And I'm really excited that you had this creative idea. Anyway, I didn't let it deter me too much. Um, and I wrote a piano solo for my senior project. But when I was in graduate school when I studied with Douglas Hill and he had he had all of his students write original music sometimes it was etudes sometimes it was actual compositions and the very first thing that I wrote were some etudes and then we had a original compositions project where I wrote my three unaccompanied pieces which uh, is out and people can play it but that was my first thing for horn and it was really funny i was cleaning my office the other day and i found my notes that i after my lessons at at the uw madison i would listen back to them and take notes and so one lesson we were talking about composing and doug said doug told me that i had a knack for one thing but then i'd forgotten this he said you don't say anything creative or new <laughs> But that's a you know, little it, that's, that, <laughs> I know, but I'd forgotten about that. Um, but it was true, you know. I was just, I was just re-speaking the type of language that I'd always been playing and learning. You know, it was like classical and romantic era type language, harmonic and melodic language. Um, but anyway, I kept writing music, and for my my dissertation. For my doctorate, I wrote a piece that a lot of people know, the To the Seasons. And it was big work. And that was really my first big work. And it's still a pretty big work. Yeah, it's substantial. Um, and it's gorgeous. Yeah. It's one of my favorite pieces right now. It's And I say right now, it's been one of my favorite pieces for three years or something like that. So okay. yeah, I'm, I'm right on board. I'm one of those fans yeah. of To the Seasons. <laughs> so, uh, but apparently at some point I, I did come up with something unique to say, at, at least unique enough that people want to play it and sing it. So 
yeah, that's kind of how I got on the composition train. Very cool. And I'm guessing, are you, you said you sing, are you also a soprano? Is that how yes. you chose? Ah, that makes a lot of sense. I chose soprano. Yeah, <laughs> I was a very high soprano when I was younger, coloratura soprano. And I just sang to the seasons back in September. I did a, a concert with Mark Robbins from the Seattle Symphony. And he asked me um, to write a piece of music for the, the new space. Pale Blue Dot was my newest piece. And I was like, okay. It was for electronics and I'd never done electronics. So that was, that was scary. That's why I wasn't sure. But he convinced me I could do it. And then he said, well, how about we program to the seasons on that concert as well? And I said, great, who's your singer? And he said, well, you are. <laughs> <laughs> You're the original, you gotta do it. That's right. I was like, oh, okay. I haven't <laughs> sung this in a decade. Here we go. <laughs> oh, that's great. So I hope it went I well. Had, it did. It went really okay. well, but I had to get back on that horse pronto. I believe it. Uh, I, I took some voice lessons with my colleague here at PLU, Dr. Cho, and she is terrific. I really like working with her. And she got me in shape and got me ready and did it i'm curious do you find that taking voice lessons ever helps with how you think about the horn because i've just, i've spoken to some brass players who love taking voice lessons for that reason in some ways yes there's a breathing component and there's also a little bit of a body positioning component too and one thing i've discovered is um the the place of your hips or the place of your pelvis and how you interact with the lower part of your abdomen uh, is really helpful for my horn playing. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. I imagine that has to do with like alignment and- Yeah, and that it has sort. to do with alignment. It has to do with the pelvic floor and how that supports mm -hmm. what you're doing in terms of a lot of high range stuff. Right. Oh, that's incredible. I'm gonna have to experiment with that. <laughs> yeah. So obviously you chose to compose for horn because you're a horn player. That's probably the easy answer here, right? Um, mm -hmm. But do you find that there were any difficulties when you were starting out composing besides, you know, people saying, <laughs> maybe crushing things to you? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I really don't remember those things as being crushing. I've even forgotten that Doug had said it wasn't original. But... <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. And he's going to hear that again and be like, what? <laughs> I have it written in my notes. Yeah, be like, I can prove it. <laughs> um, yeah. In terms of writing for the horn, did I find anything to be difficult? Not really, because I knew the instrument. I know the instrument so well. And at that level in graduate school, you're really working at a fine level with the instrument itself. So I didn't find it difficult to write for the instrument. One thing I do find myself wanting to do is that when I compose for horn, I do like to play what I'm writing and it, most especially for the articulation markings. Sure. Because I'll sing something some way and write it down and then I'll play it on my horn and I will, I will articulate it differently because I want to play it differently on my horn just a little bit. So what I find most helpful about having the instrument and playing the instrument when I'm writing is for articulation markings. So do you start by singing a melody and then you notate it or what's your composition process? Yeah, it comes in different shapes and sizes, but usually I will sing something. I'll um, just start improvising vocally. Sometimes I'll come up with a parameter that is say a type of scale or a set of notes and i'll start improvising on the horn with those different things like with pale blue dot which was my most recent composition i had a combination of pitches that i came up with for a water glass sound and i was trying to find a melody for the horn and i realized that i could use this collection of pitches that i had created for a different instrument and and so I started improvising on those pitches and um, that eventually spun out into a larger and longer melody 
So it, yeah, it usually starts with singing. It usually starts with melody, but sometimes it starts with a parameter of some sort that's a collection of pitches or a type of scale or a type of harmony. And then when you go to add something like piano, because you have your sonata as well, right? And you've got these, you know, mm -hmm. more complicated piano parts. Do you tend to kind of figure that out on your own or do you collaborate with pianists at all? Usually I figure it out on my own. However, if it has anything to do with jazz, <laughs> <laughs> which sometimes it does, I have definitely asked pianists in the past. In fact, um, Bayou Boardwalk, which is one of the movements from scenes from a bayou, mm -hmm. is the brass trio. Uh, I talked to our at the time jazz instructor here at PLU, and I said, "I have this tune, and I can kind of hear the jazz harmonies that I think I want, but I'm unsure." <laughs> and so he came in and he realized some of the jazz harmonies that were possible with this melody that I'd written. I was like, yes, that's it. But I just didn't know the language mm -hmm. of how to come up exactly with those types of chords. So at that time, I recorded him playing it. And then I took the recording and I slowed it way down Ooh. so that I could actually dictate what he had written, what he played. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> So, you know, I had to use my ear training. <laughs> it's good to know that comes in handy somewhere, you know? <laughs> yeah, to, to, to help out. And I'm actually going to meet with our, our new jazz director here um, in a little bit because I want to write, I'm writing a piece that's going to be in a disco style. Oh, cool. And I feel like something that challenges me is writing really rhythmically interesting and driven piano parts. I'm really good at long melodies and slow moving harmonies, but I'm challenged by fast and really energetic stuff. So, so typical so, horn player things, you know, that we always Yeah, that you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's probably because of, yeah, my background. <laughs> so I'm interested in getting some ideas about how to keep things peppy and how to keep things energized and moving forward. Sure. And where do you yeah. find inspiration for these melodies that you come up with? They just pop into your head on their own? Pretty much, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I'm so jealous. <laughs> I, I'm sort of this font of, of endless melodies over here. <laughs> but I do know that if I just come up with a melody at any point, I'm starting to realize my tendencies. Mm. And, and everybody has tendencies. That's why everyone's music sounds like them. Right. You really can't get away from sounding like yourself. So it's fun that I'm starting to realize where I turn melodically or harmonically and when I do it. And, and so now when I sing improvised melodies, I try and surprise myself, which is hard Ooh. to do. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, and and try, try not to be... Um, predictable. I think that's so many composers goal is is to not be too predictable. Right. But we can still always hear a John Williams melody when we hear one, you know, even that's if they right. sound different. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. I've said this, I've said this on other episodes of the podcast, but when I try and compose, I sit down at the piano and it inevitably sounds like Lord of the Rings, no matter what I do, it turns into <laughs> Lord of the Rings. I'm like, well, okay, that's, you know, what I listened to in high school nonstop. So here we are. <laughs> that's right. We are what we listen to, for sure. 100%. <laughs> My husband always makes a joke about when you use Sibelius playback, because of the timbre of things, it sounds a little bit video gamey. And so everything I write, my husband's like, oh, that sounds like Legend of Zelda. And I'm like, <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> like, stop ruining this for me. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. So how would you characterize your compositional language then? So kind of like I mentioned before, melody. It's really about melody and it's almost always tonal. I have done some things that are branching into not tonal, but it always comes back to tonality. And so um, I try and find interesting ways to use 
tonality and and melody but that's who i am so i uh, just keep writing melodies and i i think i have run across people who actually are really glad for the melodic component because in some ways people have tried to get away from melody because that's what we've always done and it gets, starts to be like well that's old what's new what's on the cutting edge and so move away from so many things you can do with rhythm or with sound or with texture or whatever which are all very cool things um but i'm still doing the melody thing and maybe at some point i'll branch out a little farther but that's what i do pretty well well there's the if it's not broke don't fix it yeah, <laughs> yeah. but one of the fun things about composing is there's endless possibilities absolutely so whatever i feel like doing next i can give it a try and that's the beauty of it. You have the freedom to just say, well, this is what I'm going to play or what I'm going to write. Mm -hmm. um, so this is always my fun little personality trivia question. Um, who is your favorite composer besides yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not my favorite composer. <laughs> Every time I write something or I listen back to some of the stuff I've written and I'm like, it's not, that's not the piece that I'm like, yes, it's the best piece ever. I haven't made that piece yet. It's what we're always striving for, I think. But to get back to your question, mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel like I always have to qualify this, but my absolute favorite composer is John Williams. Okay. And I would say that his music brings me joy. And it, every time I listen to his music, I feel joyous. That's so wonderful. And I think I think that's beautiful. Yes. I mean, that's why we're doing this, right? Is music makes us feel things. And I don't know about you, but I like to feel positive emotions sometimes at least. So, you know, anything that brings that little spark out in us is kind of the yeah. reason we're doing this. That's so great. I love that answer, John Williams. Um, very cool. What I would have to say that I was really influenced by film music growing up. And it's funny, I used to be an absolute John Williams hater. Cause I was like, Oh, oh really? he just, you know, stole. Oh yeah. He was like, he just stole Mars from the planets. But then the more I listened to an expanded body of his work, you know, the hook soundtrack and stuff like, you know, how can you not just, which has Hedwig's theme in it? Yes, it does. But how can you not just love it? I mean, it's just, it's just, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Even when it's sad, it's gorgeous, you know, and that's so much fun. Yeah. Have you played his concerto? You know, I worked on it with a student many, many years ago. And I have not personally played it, but it is hard. It's so hard. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but I love the, the Forest of Endor movement. I know that's not what it's called, but that's what it is, right? The Battle of the Trees, I think, is the movement. But yeah, <laughs> it's, it's so great. great. <laughs> um, so to move it more towards the business side um, here, how do you find that you are doing a lot of commissions or are you more just writing to write? Uh, so since 2000... 14, I think, there hasn't been a year when I don't have a commission. That's great. So, which has, is surprising to me, actually. I don't know if it should be. I, I don't think it should be, <laughs> but that's cool, but it is. <laughs> but so I've, I've got, a, I just today am getting going on a piece for band, which is, Ooh. I've never written for large ensemble. So I said, it's time. And I'm working with our ensemble directors here and we're gonna, we're getting an idea going for getting something funded. But um, yeah, I'm always working on a commission at least at this point. And it seems like every time I finish something I've got maybe a week and then somebody else will write to wow. me and say, I would love a piece. So, I have yet to really not have a commission on my plate, but it's really good because it keeps me moving and it keeps me moving forward. And especially the commissions where people want me to do something that I haven't done before, mm -hmm. like writing for electronics or writing for band right. or writing for an instrument that I haven't written before. Uh, so that's really great. The, the commissions are incredible. Thank you to everyone <laughs> who's commissioned me. And how do you typically get com uh, connected to commissioners? Do they just email you through your website or, or through your page? They, yeah, they usually find me in, in different ways. Sometimes they've heard a piece of mine at a conference or a recital. Ooh, I like that. And so they'll reach out to me. That way, um, sometimes they've run across my music. Maybe they're, um, 
studying at a college and, and someone gives me, gives them my sonata or something. Uh -huh. um, and just, yeah, various different ways. So hearing my music played somewhere or um, talking to other people, I think. And do they always have a specific performance in mind or is it sometimes they're just like, I just want this piece and I'll play it someday, you know? <laughs> Most of the time they have a project. Most of the time they have either a recording project or they have a commissioning project where they're they're wanting to get a collection of works by certain composers. They want new music by certain composers. Uh, sometimes they are wanting to do it on a recital. Most often it's connected to some sort of performance. Yeah, not too often do I get a commission and someone's like, you know, I don't have any plans for this, but I'd like this piece. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that would be a little more abstract than just being yeah. like, this is what I'm doing. Yeah, and it does help with grant writing if you have a project. Mm -hmm. Oh, I thought we could talk about grant writing all day. Yeah. Do you have any advice on that? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm sure that's mm. a whole a whole can of worms. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't done grant writing in a while, but, you know, having an interesting project is a is a good always a good thing uh -huh. yeah are there any tips and tricks for the applications you know anything specific mm, i it probably depends on the grant and it depends on what the stipulations of the grant are uh -huh. so if if the grantors are looking for projects that specifically do something like if they're looking for projects that increase diversity in a certain area, or if they're looking for projects that are a commentary on climate change, or if they're looking for projects that are community-based in enrichment. Mm -hmm. Whatever the granting agency is, you, you want to have a project that speaks to their mission. Right. Is what I would say. And as I'm thinking about this, I know that in my personal experience and in the experience of my friends, a lot of us have been afraid to approach some of our favorite composers about commissioning works simply because we mm -hmm. wouldn't know where to raise the funding. Um, mm -hmm. So would you say that composers tend to help commissioners work towards finding that funding or is it kind of all on the person who wants the piece? I would say it's on the people who want the piece. Yeah, mm -hmm. I have not ever helped with raising the funds. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm not interested in doing that. It's a lot of work. Uh, it is, it is. And I want to spend all my time with the creative side. Sure. And so what I would say is if you want to commission somebody that you really like and the fee is pretty steep, one of the best ways to do it is through a consortium mm -hmm. where you get a bunch of people together and everybody contributes a hundred bucks or something. And that's a lot easier. So like, for example, in the Northwest Horn Society, recently, I decided that we as a society should commission a work for the the society. So it was uh -huh. a, it was a horn sextet. Oh, fun! And Aaliyah Qualls was our composer that we commissioned, and so I got some experience in building a consortium. Uh -huh. because we you know she had a certain fee that we needed to reach and so then we started we made a website and started advertising this is a commission that we're doing it's going to be great here's the things you get when you're involved um, not to mention you're supporting new, the creation of new music how cool is that and um, we fairly easily raised all the funds that we need to needed to and in all honesty, a lot of it came from college teachers mm. who were interested in having horn ensemble music. Yes. And uh, specifically horn new horn ensemble music mm -hmm. and a young woman of color, incredibly talented person. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah, I think um, that's a huge, huge part of um, the, the lack of repertoire for horn right now is in the like horn ensemble area you know you mm -hmm. can find you can find the same old horn choir pieces over and over i'm sure we've all mm -hmm. played farewell to red castle and it's a great piece but <laughs> it's nice to keep expanding that repertoire so that's so great that you guys focused on that particularly 
Yeah. So obviously, since you know people approach you with performances in mind, you don't have to worry about getting your music performed. Um, but do you find um, this is something I've learned from some other composers that people don't always tell you when they're playing their your music, and does that affect? Oh yeah. Things? Okay. <laughs> yeah. All the time. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm guilty of it. I've played two of your pieces now, and I probably have never told you that I. <laughs> Did I you know. send me programs? No, because I didn't know you yet, and I was terrified. Um, so oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah, this would have been I'm really in... scary, though. Mm. Oh, I know. Clearly, yeah. <laughs> no, this would have been in... When did I play? The May? No. February of 20... February of 2020, right before the pandemic, it was my second mm. doctoral recital. I played to the seasons. And mm. then during my artist diploma, I did the Sonata. But um, so... Obviously, that's something that you would encourage people who play your music to send you a program. And that's important because that goes, are you ASCAP? Is that the yeah. publisher? Okay. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about why that matters? Yes. And it's totally no skin off the back of performers, honestly. So if you're going to be playing someone's music and they're alive, you should write to them and say, hey, I'm playing your work. And here's a copy of the program. Mm -hmm. And with that program, we as a composer submit it to our organization that we belong to. I belong to ASCAP, uh, BMI is another one. Uh -huh. And with, when we submit that program to ASCAP, then they will pay us uh, performance royalties. So the performer themselves doesn't have to worry about that. Uh -huh. The organization will pay the performance royalties. So that's so, nice. Um, yeah, yeah, so you're really helping the composers, whenever you play a, a living composer's work and you uh -huh. send them a copy of the program, um, you're helping them support their future compositional endeavors, right? Whatever, whatever those may be. Yeah, I think that's something we're not really taught. Um, so much of the music we play is yeah. for people who are dead. So, like, why would we know to you know send that information along? Right. Oh, I certainly certainly didn't know that, and I also was a little afraid when I was younger. Mm -hmm. to contact someone whose work I was playing one because I thought well why would they want to hear from me that's exactly okay <laughs> I'm I'm nobody so <laughs> exactly and there's something about seeing that like composer's name on the like very fancy printed copy that you know oh they're real they're you know they're mm. a superstar they've been published you know and yeah. that adds that extra intimidating factor I think yeah I think that I'm small enough that I still don't have the sense that I'm unapproachable. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe some people might think that because they've, they've seen my name or on programs or whatever. But in all honesty, most composers, unless they're super famous and they have their own manager and what whatnot, most composers are very approachable and I love getting emails when I, when I open my email and I've got an email in there that says hey I'm playing your piece I'm like that's so cool <laughs> you know it, it's it's exciting well that's why you wrote it is for people to play it right so that's right <laughs> and then is there a time I'm curious about this for my own edification is there a time limit to when you have to submit these programs so like for my piece or when I played my recital have we missed that deadline for you to submit that I can't remember okay I'll have to do um, some digging. Yeah, I, I will have to do some digging on that too. I thought I saw something a little while ago that I was surprised. I, I had in my mind that it was like you had to do the same year, but I feel like there's actually a few years that in time you can submit it. Okay, well, in that case, but I'll I, be emailing you my programs. Great. <laughs> right. yeah, I don't I do that anyways, not but... for sure. I don't, right. I don't know. Well, I should send them to you anyway, so you just have, you know, it's a thing. Yeah. But... <laughs> Okay, great. Um, so we'll move on to more of the music industry portion now. Um, what do you feel have been the greatest challenges of your career as a, you know, in any aspect of professor or a composer or performer? Mm -hmm. That's kind of a tough question. Uh, because for whatever reason in my life, if I if I come up to something that seems challenging, I just I guess I break it down and I move through it. And so at the end, it's like, well, that was that a challenge? Yes, it was. But... <laughs> yeah, I mean, you I got, did a whole dissertation. I got so... through it. So, right. yeah. <laughs> um, so there's all different sorts of challenges. And one challenge that I feel is to always keep growing. At the beginning of every single project, I always, this is a thought I always have. What if I can't come up with anything new and interesting? What if I've already written my best stuff? I 
always think that at the beginning of every product uh, project. So I have to get past that. And usually the way I get past that is I start improvising. I let myself marinate in a creative space. I do a lot of listening to different things. Um, maybe I give myself some really specific parameters. And when I do that, when I start breaking it down into process, there's always a path forward that you can take. I would say another challenge is getting my music out there. There's a lot of repertoire choices available for performers, and it's pretty common um, for players to, to play who they know. And it's really common for players to play who their, their favorites and their friends and everything. Uh -huh. And so I find it's challenging to break through to players who don't know me personally and who have their own favorites that they sure. like to go back to. Um, so having your music played at symposia, conferences, getting it on recordings, having friends in high places doesn't help or doesn't hurt, I mean. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so um, I've got some great friends like Mark Robbins at the Seattle Symphony who has honestly been an incredible supporter of my work from day one, really. And he's played a bunch of my pieces and has, has commissioned a few of them. So having friends like that is pretty incredible. Yeah, it's having that kind of, it's not mentor is the wrong word, but it's like just support system, I guess. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's a colleague, uh -huh. but yeah, like this person who's a little cheer team. Right, yeah, I was like, <laughs> I was trying to come up with a better word. I was like, mentor is wrong. And I'm talking about somebody who's there, but yeah, just cheer, I like cheer team. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Um, now, this is the, the heavy question I always ask. Um, do you feel that you've experienced any hardships based on your gender identity? I probably have, and in some cases didn't even know it. Um, overall, I feel like I've been incredibly fortunate to, to have the opportunities that I've had. I, I have been, I have been very fortunate and I want to acknowledge that. I know that others aren't as fortunate. Um, I've had a lot of privileges that have allowed me to gain footing easier than others. But in thinking back to my young self, going back to that first story I told about my choir teacher, um, I'm a little surprised that no one encouraged me to go into composition as I was younger, because I was writing stuff. Mm -hmm. I wrote stuff and nobody encouraged me to go into composition until grad school. Wow, yeah, that's a long time. And yeah, and I wonder if my gender was a part of that. Uh -huh. Because um, young lady, you know, what, what's she going to do as a composer? That's not who composers are. <laughs> right. Oh, there's been studies so, that show that when people think of the word composer, they immediately think of men, you know, it's, it's a whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. I'm guessing that if I had been male and shown an inclination to write music, Mm -hmm. that my teachers would have encouraged me and pushed me to do so mm -hmm. um, but up until grad school it was more of oh that's nice but nobody seemed to think it was a path i should take right so it makes me much more aware of how i interact with young women and with people of color who demonstrate an interest in writing music and i'm very aware if I, if someone comes to me with a little inkling or a spark that I, I want to cultivate that and encourage them to do that. And in your own horn studio, do you carry on Douglas Hill's tradition of, of having your students compose? Mostly it comes in the form of cadenzas. <laughs> yeah. But every once in a while we'll do an exercise where I'll, I'll have them all write etudes. And in fact, during the pandemic, that was a thing that we did where you know, we couldn't get together. So I had everybody write an etude for themselves and we compiled them all and created a book oh, cool. out of the etudes and mm -hmm. some of them were really great there, were, there was there was actually one having to do with concussions oh gosh because uh, one of my students had a really bad concussion and so um, she wrote i'm not sure if it was quite an a or of, of a study on no there was some playing involved but but you know like how to come back from and recover in this concussed situation Wow, how creative. And yeah. I that would have never occurred to me to use composition as an outlet for that kind of mm -hmm, you know, process. Mm -hmm. 
are, are those etudes published anywhere or they just live in the horn studio no they they just live in a google folder somewhere oh that's great <laughs> oh that's so fun yeah. um but going back to your gender question i it's getting better but historically the world of composers has been kind of a boys club mentality and people tend to gravitate towards interacting with and promoting their friends and when men have historically had privilege it yeah. leads to more opportunities for men and then the cycle goes until we intentionally break it right which is what what people are doing so right. projects like yours are bringing other people into the conversation and breaking the cycle whereby we just keep promoting the people who've always had the privilege that's the whole point of this is i'm just trying to give space for composers to you know get to get their voices heard that's that's the whole point there's so many different variety of people who are writing music and it's nice mm -hmm. to to even the try and even the playing ground as much as possible and and the same is kind of true in um where i what i do which is freelancing um it's it's all word of mouth you know and so i'm frequently on stages where i am the only woman brass player and i'm talking mm -hmm. like the only woman brass player and you look around and it's because these are all drinking buddies and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with the people on stage they're all perfectly nice you know usually but um so if you're not in that club that hangs out you might not get the next gig and so we have to be our own uh, megaphone you know and and mm -hmm. amplify ourselves so yeah it's it's the same in different spheres of music, for sure. Um, if you could change one thing about the music industry, what would it be? Ooh, um, hmm. That's a good question. I suppose if I could change one thing, um, it would be that, well, that's kind of more of a human nature thing going back well you know they're not they're not unrelated yeah <laughs> uh going going back to that thing where we really just kind of stick with who we know and what we know yeah. and i guess i would uh i would change that we're a bit more willing to get out of our comfort spheres and get to know mm -hmm. people that we don't know and get to know music other types of music that we don't know mm -hmm. um and also i guess as a person who has now taught uh, a music class that focuses on music that's non-Western, um, I've really learned a lot and I used to be quite an elite when it came to you know types of music. I was like, well, I like the right music, you know, I like the good music and oh i'm so guilty of anti-edm <laughs> bias i can't even tell you i'm terribly guilty so of it. in in teaching this class and really living in spaces with other types of music making i've developed the mantra that there is room for everything and not everybody's gonna like everything but all of these different traditions of music making have come about because they're very culture related and time and place related and they mean something to people and we shouldn't and we can't belittle other people for something that really means something to them. So I guess in the music world, I would change uh, musical elitism if I could. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> That's a really good one. I know um, there was this was a couple years ago at one of the musicology conferences, people were passing around I hate Beethoven cards oh. just to see, get reactions out of people. <laughs> um, and, it, and the number of people who got really, really upset, you know, when it was all entirely a joke, it was mm. entertaining to hear the feedback. So mm. <laughs> I'll just say, put curious, it that way. Yeah. Put it lightly. I know I, I kind of want to do the thought experiment now and see what would happen if I did that at any places I work. But yeah. anyways, um, so do you feel that the representation of diverse compositional voices in classical music is getting better or what, what can we do to keep um, pushing forward with us? I do think it's getting better and a lot of people are trying. The numbers mm -hmm. still tell us that women and people are color, people of color are not performed nearly as often as men. So if you take a look at almost any program, be it a recital or an ensemble concert, still the majority of performed composers are white men. Um, 
as a woman, I'm especially bothered by the gender gap because regardless of race, women make up half the women's population. So you would think that in the performance of modern music, women would make up half at least of the music performed, but we don't. So nope. <laughs> um, it's commonly said that representation matters and uh -huh. young people need to hear diverse voices. They need to be able to see people like them doing beautiful things so they can imagine it for themselves. Um, so there's a need for diversity of voices, different types of styles, different people entering the conversation. There isn't any music in the world that everyone likes. So we need many musics to speak for the diversity of people in the world. Um, so it is getting better. Another thing too that I think can happen start off with a lot of energy and say, I'm going to play these pieces. I'm going to find this music by these voices. Um, and then kind of be peter out and get tired and say, well, you know what? It's easier just to go back to Beethoven. Right. <laughs> Let's go play Adagio and Allegro again. Yeah, <laughs> right. Which, you know, that music is great. Uh, I would like to point out that it doesn't have to be either or. It can be mm -hmm. and. It can be also. So it's not like women are trying to replace men or it's not like composers of color are trying to replace white composers but mm -hmm. historically they've been there but they haven't had the opportunity to be heard how do you approach programming recitals with your students um, at the university i always prod them and say what do you think about uh pieces for women or what do you think about pieces by composers of color and they're usually really open to it. PLU is very much a place where we highlight DEI and yeah. representation and stuff. Um, and our students are sensitive to these issues. And so they want to, they want to find other voices. Um, so yeah, we always take a look at it and say, you know, whose who's music are we playing? Yeah, let's look at the people that have the standard repertoire. Let's learn that. There's definitely value and worth there. Let's, let's do mm -hmm. that. But let's also look for pieces that you really like that are newer, that mm -hmm. are by people that we haven't heard from as much. And have you ever been introduced to new pieces that you've really fallen in love with through helping your students? I have been introduced to new repertoire. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, I'm not coming. No, oh, yeah, I love an example. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Sorry. So off, the right top, off the top of my head, no. And I'm so terrible with names. I'll be working with something for a long time. And then a month later, I was like, what was the name of that thing? I know. I'll forget what pieces I've played. It'll be two years later. And I'm like, have I played the symphony before? And it's like Brahms. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, no, I did like two years ago. You know, <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I understand. But my my students do come in with new stuff. And I, I tell them, I say, go out if you're interested and bring mm -hmm. stuff in. And if I don't know it, that's awesome. Let's learn yeah. it. And if they ever find anything that's not in my database, please let me know because I'm trying mm -hmm. to add to it mm -hmm. all the time. You know, it's a growing project and that's the, the beauty of it. Yeah. So, and, and that's a lot of work to keep up with because people are composing new things all the time. And I'm yeah. always like, oh no, someone new I missed. Ah. <laughs> but <laughs> we're trying. So, um, great. So now that was the, the heavy portion. So we'll move on to the fun stuff. Um, what hobbies and activities do you do for fun outside of music? So my one hobby, yes, I know professors don't have a lot of time for hobbies. No. But uh, my one hobby is aerial silks. Oh, cool. Yeah. That must be hard. It is. It is hard. Yes. <laughs> it's like all the core strength. Ah, uh, yeah, it is hard. And unfortunately, I can only do it once a week. So it's like practicing. You can get to a certain level, but mm -hmm. if you can't do it consistently, you don't mm -hmm. you don't get a lot better so uh yeah. but i really enjoy it it's creative it's mm -hmm. artistic i would say that's why i like um doing aerial silks because it's the most creative and artistic way i've found to learn. and how did you get into that i got into this this kind of funny story so when i was in grad school i went to school with a young woman named danielle kane and she she she's a horn player she still plays some um, but actually she got into pole dancing. Oh, cool. And 
I would see these posts from her about what she was learning, and I was like, that is incredible. Mm-hmm. I'm so impressed by people who can do that. Yeah, like the athleticism and the flexibility needed to to do that is really wild. So mm-hmm. in 2012, one summer, the summer of 2012, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. <laughs> so I found some a studio. I found a studio in the area and I started learning pole dancing. Um and did that for a while, but then the studio started offering aerials. They started offering um, hoop, aerial hoop. And so I did that. And then finally they started offering aerial silks, which is what I had really wanted to do. And so finally got into that. I take it you're not afraid of heights then? <laughs> no, but I find that I'm get, as I'm getting older, if I, I know my strength, the limit of my strength. So if I know I'm tired and I'm up near the ceiling, I'm, I'm not gonna risk it <laughs> no have you ever fallen yes oh i have fallen and not hit the floor i actually hit a knot at the end of the fabric and very very badly sprained my ankle oh oh that's awful mm-hmm. yeah it was it was not fun i was on crutches for a week <laughs> i've sprained my ankle the same ankle three times in two years and I, it's no fun and the last time was i literally stepped in a hole while taking out the trash see that your story was at least more exciting so <laughs> <laughs> mine i just stepped in a hole but uh, i gosh, know yeah <laughs> giving up the ghost on me um, <laughs> so what is a piece of advice you have for young composers who are maybe just starting out mm-hmm. i would say do a lot of listening Mm-hmm. and really get to know the music that you play mm-hmm. because like for me i never studied composition formally but i studied it informally via all of the music that i learned in mm-hmm. studio lessons in ensembles in my daily life in listening i was basically studying composition but i didn't know it so if you're wanting to get into composing realize that you are studying it in all of these arenas where you're already engaged in your private lessons and your ensembles and your daily listening. Um, And then you can start to be analytical and observant about the way things are put together and how they work. And do you have any advice for young performers maybe who want to start, I don't know, commissioning their friends, you know, who are around Mm. them or something along that line? Yeah, I suppose uh, for young performers who want to commission might think about like the crowdsourcing method of funding. Uh I know it's really it's really hard to find a lot of money when you're young, right? When you're you're a young, young person. Um, If you're side by side in the same grade or whatever as another composer, a lot of times you can work with each other and it's more of the learning process and maybe you you're working with some composers who are studying as students and so a lot of students will write stuff for their classes they'll write it for composer forums or whatever and so those are some chances where you know people are writing stuff already for their uh, compositional study Mm -hmm. so you might be able to, to get in on that Oh, and you said listening is your big advice for composers. Who are you listening to as you're starting your wind ensemble process here? I'm curious about mm. that. <laughs> yeah, well, I've I've got a um, big long list of people whose names I can't remember. But um... <laughs> <laughs> I know I keep asking you for names. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I'm going to be listening to 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 Kelly anyway. That's one okay. of the names. I'm going to be writing a piece that's about grade three. Uh-huh top top grade four so which is advanced high school yeah yeah Yeah. it's meant to be accessible to high school bands and you know your university band that wants to play um, something really well Uh um but i've got a a bunch of uh, female composers that i'll probably get in touch with like alex shapiro she's around in this area oh cool um jody blackshaw um, kathy Mm-hmm. is Love somebody Kathy. who you, you might know yeah i know kathy she's yep. kind of like a, yeah an honorary horn person very much so <laughs> um, yeah so, so and great. um oh um lauren bernofsky i think is someone i'll go to when i when i want to write for strings yeah 
she's got a really yeah. good handle on that which is so cool and you haven't written anything for strings yet right no not really i started writing a piece and it. it's i've got like three minutes and it hasn't gone <laughs> i've started like two years ago and then i got all these commissions <laughs> i'm like well i'm not doing that anymore right and you know this is kind of unrelated do you ever have more than one condition condition commission going yeah, at I once do. or is it kind of like you're on that one piece is it hard switching back and forth no i usually even though i have the commissions going on at once i only write one piece at a time kind of ah i gotcha so mm -hmm. so you can focus so i can focus yeah yeah that makes sense I, I imagine otherwise it would be get like really easy to repeat yourself and put things in the wrong places like that. so, <laughs> I never, that's what i would do anyways <laughs> i never find myself doing that no i'm in very different places with whatever i'm oh, writing nice. yeah I don't, I don't mix them up mm -hmm. really oh good for you <laughs> that would be my problem i would wind up and be like oh yeah that sonata's that's... turning into that brass trio. okay cool you know, that's the wrong place <laughs> right so obviously you have commissions going on right now do you have any upcoming projects or pieces you'd like to share or promote well, I do want to promote the pale blue dot. I think that's a really cool piece that's mm -hmm. um, it's already done, but I'll probably release it to the, the world um, next spring. So keep your eye out Very for that. Cool. Um, it's with it's for solar horn and fixed media and there's a video component mm -hmm. and it's a piece about climate mm -hmm. change if you haven't seen it already. Yeah, and I'm working on a horn tuba piano trio right now. <sighs> That's which is so um, commissioned by Heidi Lucas's group, the mm -hmm. Eastern Standard Trio. And mm -hmm. it's going to be a, a collection of miniatures. And that's the one where I'm uh, currently trying to learn how to write for disco. <laughs> so cool. Spoiler alert. And then the next new, the newest one on my plate is this wind ensemble project, which we'll, we're looking at next fall for that to be done. And I have no idea. We're at the moment where I have no idea what it's going to be. <laughs> and I'm currently asking myself, what if I can't come up with anything? Well, based on your past history, I imagine that won't end up being a problem. <laughs> so let's listen to this podcast again in a year and say, ha ha! Yeah, we found it. Oh, I love that. <laughs> well, Gina, we've come to the end. I appreciate you so much for coming on. Like I said, you've been one of my, or maybe I didn't say this, you've been one of my favorite composers for a couple years now. And you're actually, not to, you know, blow smoke or anything, but this is, you're one of the composers who helped inspire my project. Um, oh, I, yeah, because to the seasons wound up on my recital and I was trying to do all women composers and I was like, why is this not out in the world? And so I'd been gathering all of these, you know, references for myself in a spreadsheet of like, okay, people that I like and are cool, I'm going to start writing them down. And I started having people come to me and asking for recommendations and I was like, well, this needs to get out in the world so people can find music. So yeah, mm -hmm. you're one of the, the founding people here, along with Kathy is another one. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's a whole bunch. So yeah, I, I'm so excited to have been able to have you on today. So. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I appreciate what you're doing. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's a labor of love. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but all right. So everyone, um, what I'll do is post links to your page in the uh, social medias for this so people can come find your music and recordings and whatnot and i believe you have quite a few recordings on youtube that people can go and listen to and i think there's some soundclouds mm -hmm. too if i'm not wrong um so the, well yeah there's so much accessible so i hope everyone will go and check out your works <laughs> thank so, you again thanks so much and i hope i'll talk to you soon yeah thanks this has been Represent the Podcast. For more episodes, you can find us at Spotify and Apple Podcasts or on my website, www.katiebethmckinney.com. If you liked what you heard today, please rate us five stars or leave a review. Thank you for listening.